We interrupt our program to bring you this important message. You have to let it all go, Neil. Fear, doubt, and disbelief. Free your mind. I just want to make an impact, a positive impact, on as many people as possible. You gotta want to succeed as bad as you want to breathe. When you're down, you might feel like you want to give up. Don't stop. Keep moving. Keep breathing. There's a war on consciousness in our society. There is an awakeness, an awareness that sees it all. And it's in you too. It's in all of us. We have to stop consuming our culture. We have to create culture. This is the G and Coletti Show. Let's begin. On this episode of the G and Coletti Show, we got to speak with Dr. Gabor Mate a renowned speaker and best-selling author who is highly sought after for his expertise on a range of topics, including addiction, stress, and childhood development. Rather than offering quick-fix solutions to these complex issues, Dr. Mate weaves together scientific research, case histories, and his own insights and experience to present a broad perspective that enlightens and empowers people to promote their own healing and that of those around them. For 12 years, Dr. Mate worked in Vancouver's downtown Eastside with patients challenged by hardcore drug addiction, mental illness, and HIV, including at Vancouver's supervised injection site. With over 20 years of family practice and palliative care experience and extensive knowledge of the latest findings of leading-edge research, Dr. Mate is a sought-after speaker, teacher, and regularly addresses healthcare professionals, educators, and audiences throughout North America. As an author, Dr. Mate has written several best-selling books, including the award-winning In the Realm of Hungry Ghosts, Close Encounters with Addiction, When the Body Says No, The Hidden Cost of Stress, and Scattered Minds, A New Look at the Origins and Healing of Attention Deficit Disorder. He also co-authored a book called Hold On to Your Kids. His works have been published internationally in 20 different languages. His unique experiences have allowed him to see some obvious or maybe not so obvious connections between childhood trauma, addiction, emotional expression, and even psychedelics as a potential modality to relieve some of the most prevalent suffering in today's world. My name is Gabor Mate. I'm a retired medical doctor, retired from clinical practice uh, three years. 30 odd years of medical work, I had a family practice. I was also the medical coordinator for seven years of the palliative care unit at Vancouver Hospital, looking after terminally ill people. And then for 12 years, I worked in the downtown east side of Vancouver um, with the highly addicted population. And, um, and in the last several years, I became interested in working also with um, certain psychedelic modalities in the treatment of addiction and other health issues. So I initially heard about Dr. Mate uh, when a few years back he was faced with some controversy as he was involved in some ayahuasca ceremonies in BC with some patients who were experiencing incredible results. Since ayahuasca is still illegal in Canada, he was asked nicely, or maybe not so nicely, to seize his participation and he reluctantly complied with the request. As some of you may know, we're working on a documentary about the use of psychedelics, and I had the chance to go to BC and sit down with Dr. Mate in his home and ask him some really important questions, starting with the topic of addiction. That addiction is nothing but a compensation. It's an attempt to kill pain, uh, to soothe distress, that in every case of every, of every addicted person I've ever dealt with arose out of early childhood trauma. One of the impacts of early childhood trauma, such as I myself had experienced in infancy, is that you close down against vulnerability. When, when vulnerability of being emotionally open leads you into suffering pain, then how you defend against that 
or how your brain and body defend against it is you close down against the feeling of deep emotion. That also shuts you off from deep love. And I also just opened it up again. And uh, I thought, okay, if, if this is a modality that can help people open up to some deep, repressed part of themselves, then it's a modality that can possibly help people with addictions. So I know you don't have any apparent addictions that really stand out, but I know um, just from talking to you that, you know, you have some uh, struggles with some feelings and showing emotion and maybe you've shut yourself off early in your life, you know. Well, he caught my ear when he told me, when he mentioned childhood traumas. Now, how, how far back does these traumas go? Does it go back to when you're a child, when, when you're an infant or when you're basically in your mother's womb? He, he says up to in, in, in utero, in utero. In utero. It's a Nirvana album, In Utero. Anyways, I think I'm saying it properly. He says up to in the womb. Now, I don't know if past life, if even people believe in that. I believe there's some truth to it. But he says up to in utero. And I know that my daughter, for example, um, when she was born, she was in labor for a long time. And now she has this sort of like phobia of being like constricted. So I don't know if that trauma has affected her in that way at all. But I think... Well, that's the thing. I think that brings me perfectly to my point. I was... Uh, my mother had an emergency C-section. I was born a day later and we both almost died. It's like a 24-hour labor or something. Talk about coming so into I'm, the world I'm with trauma. Yeah, exactly. So it's, I started with trauma. That could explain why I'm claustrophobic. I had one other incident later on in life. But if if what he's saying is, is correct, it's, it's plausible in my situation. I can see how you can connect the thoughts and now I'm claustrophobic and I shut down some emotions early on. Yeah, and later on we're going to get into some of the side effects of starting down these emotions and different examples that Gabor's going to give us. But it's interesting how you know he talks about ayahuasca because it allows you to tap into these sort of emotions and sort of, I guess, set them free. And uh, we're going to talk a little bit more about that. But before that, um, we're going to give another example of, of how you know a child might deal with such trauma at an early age and how it would affect you later on. So, so addiction is only one particular response to uh, childhood trauma. There's one particular response, and in the addicted response, basically it's, I have so much distress, so much emotional pain, I can't deal with it, so I want to suppress it by means of some behavior or some substance that'll alter my brain, alter my consciousness temporarily. Of course, it'll cause negative effects in the long term, but short-term relief, negative consequences, that's the definition of addiction. But it's only one particular response. <clears throat> there, are, there are other responses to trauma. So for example, one response to trauma is, uh, let's say you're three years old and you're being sexually abused. Well, one of your emotional responses will be rage. But you can't afford to express the rage to the abuser because it'll lead you into further trouble. Defensively, the brain and body shut down the rage. Now you get disconnected from your natural anger, which is your boundary protection. Now your boundaries will be transgressed all your life because you're not standing up for yourself. And that same repression of emotion has been documented to also suppress the immune system. So people who get autoimmune diseases like scleroderma, systemic lupus, rheumatoid arthritis, are typically people who were traumatized in childhood and responded by the shutting down of emotion. Now that's a really interesting finding there, that there's a relationship between, you know, maybe our rheumatoid arthritis and some emotional trauma. A lot of people 
won't make that connection. A lot of doctors definitely won't make that connection. You know, what do you think about that, Clay? I can see if you're under a tremendous amount of stress, it makes sense that it will weaken your immune system. People can get sick really quickly after a stressful situation. So maybe in the long term, it can cause this. But I don't think everybody with arthritis naturally was uh, possibly had a traumatic childhood. Maybe it doesn't have to be traumatic as you think, but something as little as your parent not showing enough attention and affection or love to you could be traumatic to a child. You know, I know tons of cases, you know, David the Shaman talks about it, you know, being present around your children just on your phone is, is a form of neglect because you're not there spending time with them. You're not showing them the love, even though you're there with them. And kids, they see that, they feel that, you know, whether they're trying to get attention from their parents and they're not getting it, that's a form of, that's a traumatic experience to a child who just wants love from their parents. Would, would you agree? To a certain extent, but then in that case, we all have tremendous amounts of trauma because that's life. That's the that's the yin to the yang. Don't we have to go through trauma? It can't all be be. Maybe it depends how much it affects the person, or maybe it's one of the factors that we haven't considered because people just think it's lifestyle. Maybe it's lifestyle plus a traumatic experience equals rheumatoid arthritis. Not to play devil's advocate, but I think a lot of people would just think that sometimes not okay, not being molested as a child, but in everything else, like not getting enough attention from your parents, you kind of just got to suck it up and, and adapt. In my opinion, and I would also say, according to very well-established research evidence, all chronic illnesses, with the exception of a few, very few genetically determined ones, all chronic illnesses, whether it's mental illness, like um, ADHD, um, which I've been diagnosed with, or addiction, or depression, or psychosis, or the physical illnesses like uh, the autoimmune conditions, cancer and so on, they're all relatable to early childhood emotional loss and their consequences. And there's more and more evidence about that. And not only early childhood, but even what happens in utero. So it also means that if you can understand the connections, and we have a tremendous literature now showing the, not the connection, but the unity of mind and body. Okay, this is absolutely insane. If, if this is true, then, then modern medicine totally got things wrong. We don't need, we don't need drugs. We don't need diagnoses. These are just, uh, you know, band-aids to an underlying problem. However, however, again, I, I have a couple issues here. If this is true, then you can kind of work it backwards. So, so just so I can explain a little bit more clearly, if your childhood traumas is is the one hundred percent complete reason uh, and sole reason why you become ill later on in life, then basically if I meet someone and I know how often they get sick or uh, if they've ever had any serious um, illness, life-threatening illness, I, I basically can tell how traumatic or untraumatic their childhood was. You can work it backwards. I don't even know the purpose I, of working over, it backwards. Am I oversimplifying I it? Like, you're overanalyzing like, to look back and I'm see. just trying to compare the mirror image of your childhood traumas. What would be the benefit of your... finding out if someone had a traumatic childhood? I think if you know that your sickness is due to some uh, traumatic experience, and now you can say, you know what, if I can be okay with that experience, it can help me heal. I think that's powerful. I think that's what people need to understand. What if I tell you I know people personally that had extremely, extremely uh, traumatic childhoods, and they never got sick. They never Hold had any, any serious uh, in their 70s. Okay. This is someone that I, I, I'm related to. And, uh, you know, their childhood is nothing short of, uh, you know, Saw 3 type of trauma. So it's very extreme. 
Yeah, well, maybe some people, I don't think all people are going to have a physical sort of disease if they had a childhood trauma, you know, but maybe the ones that do, that could have been the cause for it. So maybe some people are super healthy, they eat really good, and they create a good uh, environment for their body to stay healthy. Okay, hypothetical but maybe they're still suffering on the inside. Someone someone lives out, out west next to the, uh, where they do fracking and whatnot, and they're drinking kind of poisonous water. They had an amazing childhood, everything's great, and they get cancer. Does that have anything to do with... I think it's a combination. I think like not all people who smoke get cancer, but people who smoke and have a certain type of lifestyle, like a, like a stress lifestyle, Gabor talks about this in one of his books, are the ones who get cancer, lung cancer specifically. Not every single time it's the case, but there's a high correlation between the two. So I think there are other factors that could play a role in health. Obviously, there's, there multi there's multiple factors, but in, for this specific case, I think there's a huge evidence that your early childhood trauma will show evidence of these types of diseases later in life. Yeah, I agree with that. Well, I can, I can tell you about one case of a woman who was a high-level administrative assistant to a world-famous Harvard professor. And she was typically somebody who suppressed herself, who never said no, who always took on everything, who, in other words, who stretched herself to the limit rather than ever say, this is too much for me. Now, she developed scleroderma. Scleroderma is a condition, sclero means hardening, sclerosis is hardening, derma, the skin. So scleroderma means hardened skin, literally. And, and what happens in scleroderma is you have stiffening of the connective tissues uh, and the skin so that the skin hardens and thickens. You can't move your fingers. Your esophagus stiffens so you can't swallow and acid will flow back upwards. Your heart muscles can stiffen, your lung muscles can stiffen, so you die of respiratory failure or heart disease and so on. She had severe scleroderma so that she couldn't walk anymore, she couldn't type anymore. And uh, it so happened, and she was actually on the verge of requesting or wanting to find some ways of killing herself. She had totally given up on herself, and the doctors said, there's nothing more we can do for you. Then she did ayahuasca, which put her in touch with some deep emotional realities and spiritual realities, which allowed her to relate completely differently to herself. She's walking without assistance again, and she's writing a book about her experiences. She says, I used to write 120 words a minute, now I can write 50 words a minute, but at least I can write. Now, my colleagues, my medical colleagues would say, well, that's an anecdotal piece of evidence. It doesn't mean anything. Yes, it's anecdotal. There's no long-term uh, controlled studies of ayahuasca in the treatment of scleroderma. How could that possibly be when it's an illegal substance? But there are other stories like this, plenty of them. And I happen to believe in the power of human experience. And I know, I've seen it, I've seen it with other conditions. I've treated people with severe inflammatory bowel disease who could get off their medications after the ayahuasca experience. I know people with rheumatoid arthritis whose doctors have given up on them uh, in terms of anything other than suppressing their symptoms who are off medications and doing very well. A woman ran into me in the street in Vancouver two weeks ago and came up to me and gave me this huge hug and says, thank you. Because with the ayahuasca that I found out about from you, I'm no longer taking medications for my rheumatoid arthritis. So, um, yes, these are anecdotes, but at least it means 
that we should be taking them seriously and studying it. Yeah, I think I think we should be doing more studying on this because obviously, if there's anecdotal evidence that it's working, should, don't you think we should find out why? It's, I think it's an amazing story. It's a, it's an incredible situation, and and if that really was the cause, again, just playing devil's advocate because yeah, we have to. Jump. She was in a stretcher that couldn't move. She drank ayahuasca and she was able to walk like within days. I, w- I would love to meet her. I'd love to. Meet I her. actually met her last week. You met her. I met her last week. And you saw her walking and she told you the story? Shook my hand. Her hands are still crippled. Um, so she told me the whole story. Like so when walking. she drank ayahuasca, how long did it take for her to like begin recuperating? Well, she couldn't go to South America and she lives uh, in the States. And luckily she found someone to bring it to her and she started drinking on her own. Um, it's, a, it's a wild story. Um, we actually, we interviewed her for the documentary that we're working on. Um, but she did it on her own and she was walking within a day or a couple of days. She was able to walk again. She was being transported by ambulance. Like she was like, uh, she called, she said she was like a, a mummy. She was like, she couldn't move at all. Yeah. That sounds absolutely horrifying, but. And pain. She didn't sleep for two years. Pain. Yeah. And- listen, if in 24 hours you're walking, it's, it's pretty impressive. Like you said, it's, it's anecdotal. It's just a, a one-off. So it's hard to say, like it could be just some outlier, but it's, it's pretty impressive. And I think that, you know. We're not studying this because if it's curing things, again, it goes back to that. Can you make money off ayahuasca? Is it profitable? Is there a way, you know, do we want to heal people or do we want to make money? I, I hate the idea that, that people are out there trying to, to, heal, to kill or health, to, to kill or hurt us for, for profit or, or allow us to suffer. I think I, I, would, I would think that people just consider this in that category of recreational drugs and, and something that, that's bad. You're just tripping out and they don't see it as a, as a healing mode. So you just, you just think they, they don't know about it. There's not enough knowledge. The they just don't understand it and then probably don't want to be educated in it. All the autoimmune conditions, scleroderma, rheumatoiditis, lupus, I've written about that in my book, When the Body Says No. They all happen to people with significant childhood emotional loss or identifiable trauma. Now, you talk to anybody that goes to a rheumatologist are you ever asked about, like this woman in Harvard, I, uh, in Boston, I told you about, no doctor ever asked her about the trauma. You know what her story was? Her story was that she was a Korean kid who, who was in an orphanage for 10 months. Then she was adopted by an American evangelist couple where the father, when she became a teenager, admitted to her that he had sexually abused her from age two onwards. She had forgotten about that. She had repressed that memory. You think any of the physicians that she saw about his scleroderma ever asked her about that? They don't even think about it. Yesterday I was at a conference in Alberta at a very traumatized native Canadian community where, because of the residential schools, multi-generational trauma, physical sexual abuse, high rates of uh, autoimmune disease. The physicians never asked people, were you traumatized as a child? It just doesn't come up so that the treatment modalities are limited to trying to suppress the physical symptoms by giving people steroid hormones, like stress hormones like cortisol, or by suppressing the immune system, or by just giving painkillers. But we never think that maybe if this person can understand themselves emotionally and psychologically and begin to li- live life differently, that that might have an impact on their physiology. So most physicians are not trained in this despite the fact and this is all the more ironic here in Canada, because the father of mind-body medicine, you might say, was none other than the Canadian William Osler, Sir William Osler, who was one of the founding physicians at Johns Hopkins in the States, taught at McGill, 
knighted by Queen Victoria for his work at Oxford. And he said that rheumatoid arthritis is a nervous system disorder caused by worry and stress. He said this in 1892. And we still glorify Osler for his great contributions, but we don't apply what he taught. So if this has been around for, for over 100 years, you don't think, why, why is modern medicine not, not taking a shot at it, tried to study it? Well, they had an idea of what it could be. Uh, you know, an Osler, maybe he was intuitive, maybe he was just ahead of the curve. But I really think that, you know, allopathic Western medicine never looks at what the cause is. They never look at what's at the root of the illness. They always look at what's the symptom, how do we stop the symptom? So the system is designed not to cure, you know, this disease. It's designed, okay, how do we fix what's the problem, you know, at, at, the, at the end of it, not at the beginning? How do we cut it off at the root? And I guess for business, that makes a lot of sense, you know what I mean? Because, you know, even, even um, Gabor uh, alludes to it a little bit, where, you know, if, what kind of business is there if you start curing everybody? Well, I can see, see pharmacology not being involved in it, uh, medical doctors not being interested, but what about uh, psychiatrists, people that kind of stand on the, the medical side where they can prescribe drugs, but they also are, are in tune with the mind and the inner workings of the mind. Wouldn't they be the perfect? That, that, that? How do you get a company to make this stuff? Like Ibogaine, for example. How can you convince a company to try to commercialize Ibogaine when they know every time they give it to someone that they're never going to need it again? You truly believe that? Yeah, I do. So you believe they're, they're no, no. There I, I, I don't that- believe they're doing it on purpose. I don't believe it makes sense from a business standpoint. It doesn't. It's just bad business. So there's no sort of money. So this is where maybe the government has to step in and say, okay, we need this for this. I don't know. I don't know what the real reason is, but my logic says that that is not a good business opportunity for any of these companies. Possibly, but I don't know that there's a conspiracy about that. I, I have heard, I don't know how true this is, and you might want to check it out, but Ibogaine, which is another substance that is really dramatically and powerfully useful in the treatment of opiate addiction. In fact, it's, it's quite astonishing what it can do. But somebody did approach the pharmaceutical companies, so I heard, with Ibogaine, and they were not interested, because why would they be interested in the substance that a person would only use once or twice, and their addiction is finished? They'd much rather make methadone or, or other substances that you have to take daily for the rest of your life. So there's a kind of a reverse benefit. I mean, yes, you can help somebody give up their addiction, but they're only going to use it a few times. Like ayahuasca, it's not like you take it every day. Now, if you take Prozac for depression, you gotta take that every day. But ayahuasca, you might have a ceremony once a week or once a month even, or even fewer times than that. So there's, there's, no, there's not that profit in it. So I don't know that there's a conspiracy there, but there would be a natural lack of interest. So he obviously explains it a lot more eloquently than, than I tried to a little bit earlier. And, and, and it makes a lot of sense too, um, from a higher level perspective. But now we're going to switch gears a minute because people look at addiction and they think it's drugs, it's smoking, it's these other things. But there's a lot of other ways that we can become addicted that we might not realize on the surface. And Gabor is going to explain a little bit how psychedelics might uh, allow you to see that inside of yourself, that which is unseeable. Again, as Jesus says, you will know the truth and the truth will free you. But you have to know it first, otherwise it can't free you. So you got to know the truth of what's inside you. But what's inside you is a lot of emotional pain that you've been running from all your life. One way to run from emotional pain is to be addicted. Another way to run from emotional pain is to be super nice and super responsible so people will like you. 
So you never have to confront the pain of not having been loved. Well, those patterns of always being nice and always being available and never saying no will actually stress you and cause you disease. But, but, unless, but unless you're aware, like my workaholism as a physician, what was that all about? Please love me. Please think that I'm important. Because I don't. I don't love myself. I don't think I'm important. So prove to me that I'm lovable and prove to me that I'm important by being my patient and respecting me as a doctor. Which means I'm driving myself. Because it's insatiable. If we don't find that self-value and that self-love internally, nothing from the outside can give it to us. And that's what makes it so addictive. You know, most of the time we're talking about what ayahuasca can heal. It seems like there's something that happened in their life. Someone was either, you know, damaged as a child or something actually happened to them. But he mentions uh, kind of the ailment being some type of omission. So lack of love, uh, lack of feeling like the desire to feel like the need, the, you know, in his words, the insatiable uh, thirst for being liked. Now, do you think this is more of a societal problem? Like basically, I think this is a very widespread problem across the board that most people have that feeling. Most people don't even know they have that feeling. And that's why he says that, you know, it's something that sort of has to be brought brought forth. You have to understand, you need to know the truth before it can set you free. You need to know what's really bothering you before you can start feeling good, before you can get rid of whatever it is that's bothering you. And this is a consequence of, of modern day society. You know, we created this world where everybody wants to be liked. Everybody, you know, you're watching TV shows and, and you're, you're, you're entering into this fantasy world or on social media. Who doesn't want to like on Facebook? I think people are addicted to those likes because they get this sort of artificial feeling of like, oh, I'm being liked. They like my post. They like what I'm saying. You know, when your phone dings and you see someone like your thing, you get a sort and of little addicted squirt, to it. Like, would you admit, of dopamine? Would you, know you admit I mean? that you're slightly addicted to it? Do you, I'd when, say so. If yeah. you get a post and you get like a couple hundred likes, do you, do you feel good. different? Yeah, it feels good. Now, once I realize, yes, there's a deep fear in me of not being loved. I can just notice the fear, but I don't have to keep compensating for it. And the psychedelics is, is my own first experience with ayahuasca can also put you in touch with that deep love that's inside all of us. All of a sudden, there's no reason to run. No, it's not that simple. It's not that quick, but that's the process. So the psychedelics in manifesting the mind, particularly in manifesting the unconscious mind, can actually give you some freedom from being driven by these unconscious forces. And hence their healing power. And they can put you in touch with the true self that is at peace, that is love, that is value, that is um, connection. All the things that we all miss in, in, the, in the hubbub of our daily lives. So this sounds very interesting, but at the same time, it's highly, highly conceptual. And for someone that's never tried any, any, any ayahuasca or any plant medicine or any psychedelics for that matter, I have a hard time understanding what he's talking about when he mentions certain things that uh, apply these boundaries on our, our consciousness and shape our daily lives and our daily actions. As someone that's done ayahuasca quite a few times, can you give me an example of an actual situation where you learned something from an ayahuasca ceremony that you were doing before and afterwards you were able to, I guess, correct in your life? Well, first, there's a couple of points I want to make. Um, yes, I guess I could. Um, but the thing about ayahuasca, and like he sort of mentions, it's not like you're going to get an answer all the time that's very 
this is what you have to do, Coletti. This is what you need to do and you'll be better. A lot of the time, it's bringing up this subconscious. It's sort of very subtle and sort of pushing you in a direction. Now, I don't even know if that makes sense to you, but what allured me to try ayahuasca was the fact that when I saw people explaining it in DMT, the spirit molecule, right away I could understand that there's no way from what they're telling me I'm getting the full picture, the full understanding. It's very experiential. And then after doing it, you know, my assumptions were right. It's something that is very experiential and very hard to translate into words, although Gabor does a very good job of doing it. As I mentioned in the ayahuasca episode two about Dave, was like sometimes having more balance in my life, that I was in control of that balance was something that I wasn't able to see because I was so caught up in the hubbub of daily life. And it allowed me to sort of just be aware of it and say, you know what, I'm in control of the balance of my life, not my job, not all these other demands, I'm in control. And, you know, maybe appreciating my kids and my wife more and spending more time with them was something I needed to do. And I didn't have to wait till I was 20 years down the road looking back saying, I work too much and I wish I would have spent more time with my kids. I got that sort of information now, which was so valuable to me. And, you know, I'm still trying to incorporate that into my everyday life. I was really attracted to Gabor Mate when I first heard about him, um, you know, a medical doctor using uh, ayahuasca to treat patients. And as I started reading more and more of his books, um, I realized, you know, what a great thinker in mind he was. And I hope, you know, his thoughts and ideas will help to sort of influence more doctors and more people in general to start looking at psychedelics in a different way. And he was one of the people who actually inspired me to um, start working on a documentary called Psyched Out, which really uh, highlights some of the misconceptions about uh, the psychedelic movement. The war on drugs was a complete failure, and I think it's time to just really reevaluate you know, the bureaucracies of modern society that are really holding us back from some really incredible tools that we could all use to help enhance our everyday lives. Yeah, in an ideal world, we would drop this Western arrogance that we know better. We would realize that as much as we've achieved with Western technology and uh, science and thinking, we've also lost a lot. And what we've lost are deep wisdoms developed and lived by Aboriginal peoples who we've tried to culturally extirpate. And that the psychedelic plants again, while no panacea in themselves, are a powerful modality. Uh, and the psychedelic substances in general could be a powerful modality towards healing and towards wisdom that are worth exploring. And we would drop the idea that there's only one way of, of looking at things. And we would allow ourselves to explore other modalities and to be humble, to be justifiably proud of what we know and to be humble about what we don't know. That's the attitude I'd like to see. That means dropping the bureaucratic control. That means being rational rather than bureaucratic. Like with ayahuasca, for example, which is illegal in Canada, Health Canada has acknowledged that it's neither harmful nor addictive. So the reasons why it's being illegal are purely bureaucratic, that being, it contains substances that are illegal, and therefore it is illegal. And yet Health Canada acknowledges that the amount that anybody would get, you have to drown in it to die from it. 
you have to you know jump into a pool of ayahuasca and 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 and, and put rocks on your feet and then it would kill you otherwise it's hardly likely to hurt you in the quantities used in ceremonies so drop the bureaucratic nonsense be open to possibility and 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 and, and psychologists and researchers and physicians Open yourself to the awareness that what you know is useful but limited, and there's other ways. That's what I like to see in an ideal world: is, is, is humility. And with humility comes openness, and with openness comes new learning. And with new learning comes knowledge. And with new knowledge comes new ways of being and working. And we desperately need that. Thanks again for listening. We really appreciate um, each and every one of you guys, whether you're following us on Instagram, um, G underscore and underscore Coletti, Facebook, all your, you know, your great emails you guys are sending us with ideas. We got a lot of amazing, amazing podcasts about to come out. Please, you know, subscribe to us on iTunes and leave a, leave a review. And uh, thanks again for listening.